Blue Wire. With the first pick in the 2009 NFL Draft, the Detroit Lions select Matthew Stafford. Stafford, step it up. Going left side. Watch Calvin. And so got him. Oh, baby, that was a rocket. And it's picked off. Intercepted by Darius Slade. No one will catch him. Hello and welcome to episode 44, the John Wallace of episodes of the Michael Rothstein Show. I'm your host, Michael Rothstein, and this episode is brought to you by Bet Online, where you can get a 100% welcome bonus with your first deposit if you use the code BLUEWIRE when you log on at betonline.ag. Totally check them out. And it's slowed down a little bit since our last episode when it comes to free agency. The Lions re-signed Miles Killebrew. They re-signed Ode Abouche, uh, who was probably going to end up competing for the vacant guard spot. Right now, I think that that's the most open spot on the Lions roster as you've got Abushi and you've got Bo Benchwall and maybe Russell Bodine. And probably one or two more players that will end up coming in to work to try and win that position. But it's been a little bit slow. The Lions have had a couple of their own free agents head out to other places as well. Sam Martin agreed to terms in Denver. He's now the third ex-Lion to end up with the Broncos joining Jeff Driscoll. And Graham Glasgow. So Martin is going to be booming punts in Denver, which, of course, is the former home of the guy he used to hold for for field goals, Matt Prater. I would imagine Martin, who still has one of the stronger legs in the NFL, is going to really benefit from being out with the Broncos. And it'll be really interesting to see how he produces there. But... We're getting back to our interviews here on this episode of the Michael Rothstein Show. And we were joined on this episode of the show by ESPN New England Patriots beat writer Mike Reese. So we could chat a little bit about everything. We talk about Tom Brady and what it's going to be like to see him in Tampa Bay and what it was like covering him for two decades. We get into... Matt Patricia and his relationship with Bill Belichick, his relationship with some players. We obviously talk about all of the Lions' new signings, Jamie Collins and tr- the trade with for Deron Harmon and Danny Shelton. And we get into a bunch more, too, about Patricia, about the Lions and the Patriot way and why maybe it doesn't always work outside of New England. It was a pretty fascinating conversation with one of the best beat writers that I feel like we have. Uh, on ESPN's NFL Nation, and it was just a really fun conversation to have with a guy who I, who has really been a mentor to me since I started covering the NFL seven years ago. So hopefully you will enjoy that conversation right after this break. With currently no NBA, NHL, or Major League Baseball, you might think there's nothing to bet on. Well, you'd be wrong. Our exclusive partner still has hundreds of sports, events, and games to wager on or let them bring Vegas to you with their online casino and blackjack. Bet online is open 24 hours a day. It's all online and it includes their $750,000 poker series. If you're into props and entertainment betting, you can still bet on Survivor, Big Brother, American Idol, stock prices, and even the weather. And in Michigan, it's probably cloudy. Visit their website and join today to receive a 100% welcome bonus with your first deposit. Be sure to use the promo code BLUEWIRE to get that. Bet online, your online wagering experts. And now, back to our show. And now I'm welcoming to the Michael Rothstein Show, the dean of the reporters covering the New England Patriots. For everything you need Patriots related, you need to follow him. He's also been a good mentor to me during my time at ESPN. You can follow him on Twitter at Mike Reese and on Instagram at Mike Reese Patriots. He is obviously 
the great Mike Reese. Mike, welcome to the show. Michael, great to be with you. Thanks for having me and hope you're doing well. Yeah, I'm doing all right. I guess before, obviously, we get into anything Patriots-related or, or Lions-related, the obvious question is, how are y'all doing? How is your family doing? You guys are in Massachusetts, which seems to be becoming a hot spot right now with, with COVID. So what's going on there with your family? Well, you know, I think like everyone, we're, we're trying to stay positive and, you know, um, we're, we're appreciative for our health and we wish everyone else um, good health. And, you know, we're also, um, we, let, we acknowledge that there are people on the front lines of this, you know, that are really the people that I would want to salute, you know, um, that are helping, uh, helping our country uh, to try to um, manage this unbelievable situation that is, is scary, Michael, in many ways. Um, but I believe in our resolve and just trying to stay positive. We got two kids at home, 11 and seven. They're, they're learning how to uh, go to school through the computer. And I'd like to believe that maybe some positive can come from this in time. And, and um, we're just going to keep sort of putting one foot in front of the other and being appreciative for what we have. So are you becoming teacher as well here? Are you like learning how to teach middle school English or? <laughs> yeah. So it's basically setting the kids up on, on um, through the computers and they connect with their teachers and their classmates and they get lesson plans. And then they, so after like a morning meeting with their teacher and their classmates, um, you know, they, they then go ahead and uh, put, you know, do the work at home and, we're checking it. So it's a, a balance between, you know, look, we're, we're both working. And in addition to doing that, we want, we need to make sure that they're, they're doing the learning that they need to do. Yeah. It's what was last week like for you as far beyond, we'll get into the Tom Brady stuff in a second, but you were based on what I could tell the only person on site for the first, I think two or three days of free agency before Jenna before Tom Brady went to Tampa. What was that like for you? Were there other reporters around there in New at Gillette with you? Or was it literally you and a producer and you're just the two of you standing there and it goes down like did the kids come with you? What was that like those first couple of days? Well the the first thing is we we took company directive and you know we weren't going to do anything that was going to put anyone at risk, whether that be ourselves or people around us. So we took the company directive and and it received, you know, approval from the highest of levels that in light of the Tom Brady decision being a very significant story in sports and there not being much else to report on, that since we were in the area, that we would go to the site of the Patriots and while maintaining the social distancing and following all the guidelines that were required of us, that we would report on the story to the best of our ability with the top priority protecting the safety and well-being of ourselves and everyone around us. And so uh, ESPN, we're, we were there. We also had NFL Network that was there, and we kept our distance. You know, we, were, we didn't work close to each other, um, but I felt like we were able to get our work done. And then after three days, um, we retreated, and we said everything we do from here on out will be from the home front. Was that, were those longer days than maybe, I mean, it seems like a lot of days with the Patriots would be long because you end up doing a lot of television, but were those longer because literally you can't be really around people and like you said, it's you and it's someone from the NFL network and that's it. Like, did that make it feel longer or more isolating than it normally would? Well, it was definitely different, Michael, than it usually would be just because you'd usually have, you know, uh, so many people in this media workroom, it would be overflowing. So that part of it was different. But I would say once the story breaks, you're focused and you're locked in and you're really, it's no different in that respect than any other story uh, of that magnitude. And you're just doing your professional due diligence, you know, your professional responsibility to report it as accurately and advance it as much as possible. Like one example would be, um, let's see, uh, Tuesday morning when the whole thing came down that Tom and Tom Brady announced that he wasn't going to be coming back to the Patriots. I'd say within the hour, I was on the phone with owner Robert Kraft, who helped advance the story by describing how Tom Brady came to visit him at his home. 
Monday night to relay to him the decision, why he was making it. And he described what that meeting was like. And so when you're in the moment and you're reporting on a story like that, really the, the outside factors are, they're there, you're aware of them and you're definitely, um, you know, respecting and maintaining the social distancing and, and you're reminding yourself what is truly important in that moment. But at the same time, you're doing your job and you're reporting on the story. And so that I would say in that sense, it was really no different than anything else. So obviously we've hit a couple of times already on this story, which was Tom Brady leaving New England for Tampa Bay. Has that sunk in yet that he's not going to be around? Because you've covered him for the entirety of his career. Like, is it sunk in? Like when, whenever we're able to go back to NFL locker rooms and NFL stadiums and sites, you're not going to be around Tom Brady anymore for the first time in two decades. Has it sunk in? Uh, yeah, I would say it has. Um, you know, one thing I would say, you know, when it happened, that, that's the, the, the moment it happens, the first couple hours, the first day. You know, yeah, I woke up the next morning and I will tell you, I was like, let me just make sure I wasn't living in a dream. You know, but here we are, we're more than a week after the fact and it certainly has sunk in. And, and you know, what I, what I did a lot, Michael, was I, I retraced my steps. You know, and I say, okay, on my reporting, you know, where, where was I on point and where was I maybe have a little blind spot here or there? What could I have done differently so I can learn from that going forward in future situations? Um, but I would say absolutely. It's set in and, and, and Bill Belichick's words resonate with me. He says it every year. I mean, I could go back to 2002 after they won their first Super Bowl to 2004, to 2007, to 2008, whatever, pick a year, to last year, he always says every year is different. It's a clean slate. No team's ever going to be the same. And I mean, I was never naive to think that Tom Brady wasn't going to be a part of that. I mean, this was going to happen, whether it was this year, a year from now, two years from now, three years from now. I didn't think it was going to be this early that it was going to happen, but it happened. And so I think from having been conditioned from past years, the way Belichick approaches things and the way the reality has been with the Patriots, that there's been significant change over time that, yeah, certainly it has sunk in at this point. When was the first time you realized that Tom not coming back to New England was a realistic, I won't even say just possible, but like a realistic possibility that this would be the end game, maybe not Tampa, but just somewhere other than New England. Yeah. So, well, you know, the way I looked at it was if once it got to Monday at noontime, when the legal tampering period began, if there was no deal, I thought to myself, yeah, they're still going to have talks, but it's going to be right in that window between Monday at noon and Wednesday at four Eastern time. Well, when free agency officially begins. And then I thought to myself, well, not only is there no deal, but they haven't even really talked. And, and so I would say at that point, Mike, I started to come to the realization that as much as I thought they would come together and figure it out and make it work, um, I started to have some doubts. And I remember I did one TV hit on NFL Live where Susie Colbert, the host, asked me, all right, you know, you've been around this team. What's your gut feeling as to how this is going to unfold? And sort of, you know, I would say I wasn't expecting the question, but I appreciated the question. And I think my answer was, you know, I do believe there's a spot for Tom Brady on this team if he wants it, but I'm starting to doubt if he really wants it, you know, given all the circumstances that unfolded. So I would say my thoughts started to shift that Monday after 12 o'clock when other teams could start negotiating with Tom Brady. And I knew behind the scenes that there had been literally no movement between him and Bill Belichick in any talks. So obviously Tom Brady has been a centerpiece along with Bill Belichick of this new England dynasty that's lasted for decades at this point, you know, almost two decades at this point. What's it been like to cover that dynasty? And does it feel like it's at a major inflection point for it? So what's it been like to cover it? I would say, you know, to sum it up, Michael, a dream come true. You know, I, you know, there's a couple, 
when you get into this, you get into it because you love football, you love to tell stories. And I mean, you couldn't have written this story any better in terms of that from a, from a journalistic reporting perspective to go to nine Super Bowls to cover, you know, six championship teams that, you know, from that group and then just the dominance, you know, that's part of it. Like, it's great. You know, you're at, you're at these unforgettable moments um, and there's just an unbelievable list of them. Um, that being said, you know, I think the other part of it is I, I maintain for me, like Tom Brady wasn't just a great player. Like it mattered to me that it felt like the person I was chronicling was also a very good individual. And we don't necessarily know the athletes that we cover. We, we only get limited interactions with them. A lot of times they're behind a podium and, you know, we're at a distance away or we're in front of their locker. So you get like a slight glimpse into their life, but you piece all those together over 20 years and you do get to paint a picture, you know, as to what you think this person is. And so to me, covering that and covering specifically Tom Brady was was really a, a treat. It was a pleasure. And I would say, you know, obviously never going to be duplicated again. And point blank to answer the second question, is this at a, a crossroads, a fork in the road, however you want to say it? Absolutely. I mean, we're talking about arguably the greatest quarterback of all time. I know we can have that debate. How can it not be when he's no longer there? All along, we've always said the Patriots program is bigger than one person. It's about a team and it's about this, the overall unit, you know, but as we've said that they've always had Tom Brady as a security blanket to fall back on. And now that that's not there, it's a compelling question. You know, how much of it was Tom Brady versus the overall program? We're about to find out. While, while you're covering this over, I actually, before we go there, what do you think that, like you said, you're about to find out, what do you think what what's your gut what this what is this going to look like is this going to be people maybe realize that this was more tom than bill people maybe going to realize this is more bill than tom do they both have success do they both struggle kind of in that void without each other so i would start with the patriots and i would say you know there's a saying up here in new england and bill we trust and bill belichick knows how to build a team knows how to build a program. And so, well, I think the Patriots right now are tightening some things up, Michael. They're, they have about $25 million worth of dead cap space. They're paying some bills, you know, that, that, you know, for decisions they had made in the past. They're tight to the salary cap. This is like a two-year window to me where they can clean some things up this year, build a foundation, remain competitive while doing so. Um, you know, whether they can win a Super Bowl, that's going to be tough, tough to say right now, but you know, look, any team can get hot at any time, right? No one saw them winning it in 2001. So I'm a big believer in not putting a ceiling on it, not putting a cap on it, and just going through the process of, all right, this is where they are. This is how they're going to proceed and seeing how it unfolds. You know, I, I, to me, that's part of sports. Like, I don't necessarily do it. I feel like I might be in the minority. A lot of people like to say, oh, six-win team, what's the point? Like, well, that's not why I got into it. Like, I love football. I love the challenge. I love the, the remake. I love whatever it is, you know? And so I wouldn't put it past the Patriots to still be competitive this year and figure out what they have at quarterback with Jared Stidham. And next year, they – open up quite a bit of cap space. Right now they project to have in the $100 million range. So I think it's a two-year window, you know, and they'll position themselves for maximum flexibility next year to continue whatever rebuild, reboot, however you want to say it, is taking place right now. So that's the Patriots side of it. And for Tom Brady, look, the number one rule for me is I never bet against Tom Brady. I learned that a long time ago. So I'd expect big things from him in Tampa Bay. Looking at it critically, Michael, I'd say one thing is Bruce Arians' offense traditionally features more uh, routes, you know, that take a little longer to develop. So the quarterback might have to hold the ball a little bit longer. I am interested to see how that marries up with what I think is one of Tom Brady's greatest strengths, which is the quick release and getting the ball out of his hands and staying out of harm's way. 
So, you know, to me, those are some of the things I'm looking at, you know, with the, those factors. Kind of going away from Tom Brady, the Lions signed a plethora of Patriots-related people over the last week, whether it's trade or free agency. I think I figured it out the other day. Like, it looks like five, potentially five of 11 starters on the Lions defense this fall will be have played in New England for at least a season. Why? I mean, beyond the obvious, why do you think that that's such an obvious slide in besides Matt Patricia? Or is it simply that it's just Patricia and the defense is the same or similar? So, so if I heard it right, I, I think this is how I would sum it up, Michael. Like, clearly this is an important year for Matt Patricia and Bob Quinn. Their third year together, and they need to produce probably to keep their jobs. Like, I, I don't know if that's an unfair statement. It seems to me from afar that that would be an accurate statement. I would agree so, with it. So, so when you're in that position, I try to put myself in their shoes. Like, you, going with familiarity, especially given everything that's going on in our world with less off-season practice time and all that stuff, I mean, it just makes a lot of sense, right? And to go with the known product commodity, and I think it gives you the best chance to win quickly and preserve what you have to give, to buy yourself more time to continue to build your program. So looking at some of the guys they are bringing in, I, I want to start with Jamie Collins. Where do you think he's at at this point? Because the, the thought process with him, they obviously cut Devon Kennard right at, almost right after they signed Jamie Collins. Can he fit that Jack Edge role? Is he more of a versatile guy where maybe they're going to move somebody else into that role and he plays maybe more outside or in the middle? Where does he fit into a Patriots style of defense? Well, he can play all over, Michael. So he's, you know, he's a piece you can move around. Incredibly athletic. Uh, was their leading tackler this past year. So you know, a lot of positive things with Jamie Collins in terms of how he can be used. If you're asking me to put my coaching hat on and sort of say, hey, uh, yeah, I know he can be used in a lot of different places, but where's the best spot? I would put him off the line, you know, sort of that inside linebacker type spot where, he, where his ability to run shows up a little bit more. You know, I would point out just to balance off the ledger, if you go to the Patriots wild card round playoff loss to the Titans, uh, January 4th, they're playing a base 3-4 defense. And really the, the top priority defensively against the Titans and Derrick Henry is to stop the run. Jamie Collins wasn't on the field in the base defense. He, he was in a sub-niche role in that game plan. Now, that was diff you know, that's obviously a unique situation. You're not going to play teams like that. But I thought that was a telling personnel decision by the Patriots that tipped off how they viewed him as a player, you know, or, or how they viewed their roster in terms of, hey, we have some better options here against a run-first offense. So he, to, to kind of maybe understand based off of that, so he's maybe better in, frankly, in, against a lot of the offenses that the Lions might play, whether it's a Green Bay, specifically Green Bay, where if you're facing a quarterback like Aaron Rodgers where they're going to throw the ball a lot and you know they're going to throw the ball a lot, that's maybe a more advantageous situation for Jamie Collins than maybe even facing like a Minnesota that has a Dalvin Cook that they're going to try to run. Yeah, and I, I think it, it's just contingent on, on matchups, Michael. So, like, if a team is going to come out in two tight ends with a lead fullback and, you know, let's just say two tight ends and two backs, right? I don't know how many teams are going to do that on the Lions' schedule. You know, Jamie can still be on the field, but I would say that's not really what you're paying him, whatever, you know, what was it, three years, $30 million for? Like, yeah. You want them on the field in your three safety package, you know, when you're trying to match up against tight ends, your three, you know, three safety nickel or, you know, your three corner nickel or your dime package, you know, that he runs really well. He's a really, really good athlete. And so it's going to show up more in that area than let's say, you know, take on a block, shed and tackle. He can do it. I'm not saying he can't do it, but 
you know, I don't think that's necessarily the, the primary asset that Jamie Collins is bringing you. So he's, he's more likely than to maybe cover a tight end versus be an edge rusher. Well, I don't know. I mean, look, I think he can rush off the edge. I, he can certainly blitz up the middle. I would say, so no, I don't know if I would say that. I think okay. he can do both things. I think it's more what you're going to call out of the package. So, Mike, I'd start with the package. All right, what's the offense putting out on the field? All right, you know, two receivers, and, and is the tight end more of a – you know, a move tight end or a blocking tight end, you know, like, so it's more like that type of aspect. Let's to, to simplify it. So let's start there. It's what's the offense putting out as a package. Okay. You know, this is a little bit of a, we want more of a lighter package on defense where uh, our, you know, guys that can run a little bit more versus, Oh, on offense, they're putting out a heavy package. You know, he might still be on the field and he can do everything. You know, I'm just saying more his strengths, I would say, uh, play more to the first part, you know, the nickel packages, the dime packages, which is really, in essence, what the game is these days. 80, 90% of the time, you're going to be in sub packages. Before we move to another player, what's maybe the most interesting thing about Jamie Collins that you've learned? He's really quiet. And, you know, in his first year with uh, the first couple of years with the Patriots, he hardly did any interviews. Uh, goes off to Cleveland, and I think that experience in Cleveland, you know, uh, altered his perspective a little bit. And when he came back this past year, it was almost like a different Jamie Collins, you know, that we hadn't been used to seeing from a media perspective. Looking at Deron Harmon now, who the Lions obviously traded for, he, he he's actually talked to the media already. He was really, really engaging. And the one of the things that he said – that struck me was that he was excited because he thought he'd have more of a role defensively. What exactly were they having him do in New England behind McCordy and Chung? Uh, and maybe what can he do that he hasn't been able to potentially show? So Deron Harmon was the third safety for the Patriots. And so, and they ran a lot of three safety packages. So in a way he was a starter, but if they, we're running, let's say, a three-corner nickel package, he wouldn't be on the field. Deron Harmon, really smart. Uh, more of a center field type safety. Now, Michael, he doesn't run at the highest level for a safety. So when I say center field type, don't necessarily think of this like otherworldly range. You know, but just puts himself in position to make plays due to his intelligence and his anticipation. And when I say that about the speed, that shows up in the sense of he wasn't on many special teams units for the Patriots. So he was really a, I don't want to say a niche player, but a very specific role. Third safety in a variety of sub packages that they run and probably played in anywhere between 50 to 70% of the snaps what I'm hearing from him listening to his interviews, his conference call with you and the Detroit media is he feels like in Detroit, he has a chance to elevate up to a top one or two safety role where that playtime percentage can be up over 90, 95% given good health. Does he have the skill set to be able to handle that? You think, because like you said, his range can be a little bit limited. So maybe is the third safety where he's best and the Lions might overextend that? Well, I would say it depends what else you have on your roster, right? And so I would say you would probably know that better than me, Michael, in terms of what else the Lions have and what are those players' skill sets. Maybe you end up doing more of a liberal three-safety rotation, depending on how those pieces fit, just to keep everyone maybe at more of an equal level. Um, look, you never know until a player actually is put in position to do it. Was Deron Harmon, was his limited playing time simply a result of the players in front of him who were very good, Devin McCourty and Patrick Chung? Or was it because his skill set more was the result of, you know, led to that number being that way? Sometimes players get in a situation where, like, there's nothing they can do because the players ahead of them are just a little bit better 
than them. And so I think those are some of the dynamics in play as we talk about Duran. The, to me, the most interesting signing that I think they've made, period, is Danny Shelton. I think he has the most potential, potential, uh, potential, potentially, of of all of them. Mm. What is it that he brought to New England the last couple of years that maybe stood out that made him attractive? Because of those three guys, of these three guys that we're talking about, Matt Patricia—he's the one that Matt Patricia and Bob Quinn haven't been around because mm-hmm. they were both here already. So what is it that maybe made the, that he showed in New England that made that him attractive to them, you think? One word, strength. Very, very, very strong at the line of scrimmage. And this is an interesting one, Michael, because he re-signed with the Patriots. He was the number three defensive tackle in 2018. And he goes to free agency nothing really happens for him because he, I don't want to say he had a nondescript 2018, but he was the third defensive tackle behind Lawrence Guy, Malcolm Brown, who's now with the Saints, and then it was him. So he played about 30% of the snaps in 2018 because what the Patriots do, and I think the Lions, I'm, I'm going to sense, are probably pretty similar, is on first down, they're going to run out two big defensive tackles. When I say that, these are guys that are, you know, six foot three, six foot two, whatever, and up, 320 pounds and up, you know, and they want to secure the middle of the line of scrimmage with those two defensive tackles. And then when it becomes more of a obvious passing situation, those guys are coming off the field for some defensive tackles, maybe one, maybe two, who run a little bit better, who have a little more athleticism, a little bit more juice in the pass rush. So now sometimes those big guys can stay on the field, but in general, that's the concept, which means they're going to play about 50% of the snaps if they're a quote starter, end quote, right? So Danny Shelton comes back to the Patriots in 2019, two months after free agency begins and signs a one year, $1 million deal. So that speaks to the expectations surrounding him going into last year the Patriots even went out and signed someone else Mike Pennell former New York Jet to a two-year deal with a maximum of eight million so it was telling you that the Patriots thought going into last year based on the money that Mike Pennell was going to be the starter next to Lawrence Guy not Danny Shelton so what happens they get to training camp and I know coach Patricia and Bob Quinn have the same philosophy like you don't just get a starting spot. You got to go earn it. Well, Danny Shelton starts to ball in training camp. For whatever reason, you know, the light went off. He started to adapt better to the techniques that the Patriots teach. And he really took off. And because he took off, it sort of shaped the way the Patriots molded their defense really the rest of the year. And he had a great year. And that leads him to this deal, two years, eight million with the Lions, which he earned. It's interesting you mentioned the the fact that light came on for him and they built their defense around him because I've always felt that Matt Patricia, and you can probably speak to this as well, having covered him, really likes to build his defenses from the middle out, meaning the middle of the defensive line, middle linebacker spot safeties. The fact that Shelton showed that in the middle of New England's defense last year, do you think that that's what gave the Lions the confidence to go sign him? And how much of a surprise was that maybe even to Bill Belichick that he did that? Money aside from what we're talking about with Mike Pennell, like, was he actually surprised at any point that like Shelton finally showed up? No surprise. I think, I mean, because look, Danny Shelton entered the league as a first-round pick. You know, there's a reason for that. And I think – Anyone, you know, I mean, anyone will tell you the light goes on for different players at different times, if it goes on at all, right? Yeah. And so no surprise there. And, and when I say, like, build the defense, I think in the offseason, you go in with an idea of how you're going to do it. And, you know, the Patriots traded for Michael Bennett, who's really more of a 4-3 end. And so, you know, the Patriots probably were thinking, yeah, probably more of a 4-3 or along those lines, you know. And then Danny Shelton. Uh, you know, starts to play well as more of a, a three, four inside guy, you know, a nose tackle type. And, and then Jamie Collins shows up 
he was a similar story, Michael. Like they signed him after free agency for not much money at all. And he shows up and, and like, they're like, wow, we, we probably have personnel that's more suited to a three, four type package than a four, three. And that's sort of what I was getting at when I talked about, you know, how the initial thoughts on what they might do defensively shifted a little bit. And I, it's my analysis that a big part of that was due to Danny Shelton. And for the purposes of our conversation, absolutely Jamie Collins as well. So with Danny Shelton, I mean, it's not from just what you were saying before and even kind of looking at the Lions, it would seem like if he plays 50 to 55% of the snaps and kind of takes that role that Damon Harrison had as primarily a large human run stopper, that, that's, that's where he fits best, 100%. right? Like asking him to rush the passer would be probably not the best idea. 100%. Now, I will say this, knowing how Coach Patricia, you know, does the – um, you know, unique game plans on a week-to-week basis. There might be some plans, Michael, where he's like, look, pushing the pocket right up the middle with power rush is going to be a big part of what we got to do because we got to get this quarterback to move his feet, okay? That's not going to happen every week, right? Mm-hmm. But, but in certain sub-packages, you can keep Danny Shelton on the field and he, he can do some, he can do some, give you some help in that area. I would say it's going to be more of a niche though, than something I would expect to see on a regular basis. I'm curious your experiences with the three other mainstays, because there's actually a lot of guys kind of on the back end of this roster, the Lions roster right now that have spent a half season, some time on the practice squad, maybe a year with the Patriots here and there, but obviously Danny Amendola, Trey, Flowers and Justin Coleman all spent significant time in New England as well. Impression, what was your impressions of all of them? I know that that's a large question and three different guys, but I'm just curious what your impressions were when you kind of look back at them. Well, let's, let's go down the list. Danny Amendola to me, consummate professional um, guy I want in my program, especially if I feel internally that I got a, that it's a make or break year. So you know, look, I look at it this way, Michael, like when I'm putting together a team and I've never done it before. So I say this respectfully, knowing that there's great challenges for those that are in the position, putting together a team, like the quality of individual I want in my locker room is going to be extremely high. Like we, we, we need great players. Don't get me wrong, but I need guys that I know that when the going gets tough, you know, they're going to be there for me and they're not going to fold their tent. So I put Danny Amendola high on the list of guys that, you know, fall into that category. Trey Flowers, same thing. You know, I think to me, just like a sturdy presence up front, quiet guy, you know, not not like the most out-of-this-world athlete, you know, that is going to dazzle you with a highlight. But I appreciate his steadiness. And I think when you're trying to build a program – the steadiness of showing up each day. This is, you know, even keel, perfect. You know, that, that's the type of guy you want around. And Justin Coleman, it's been a little while, you know, since I've been around him. I would say he really blossomed when he went out to Seattle and got a chance to play a little bit more. Um, so I wouldn't feel as qualified to comment on him, but I would say from a general standpoint, you talked about it earlier about the type of offenses that the lions are going to face your third cornerback is a basically like a starter on your team. And that's a pretty, you know, you'd like to feel like you have that position pretty well secured. And if the arrow keeps pointing up for Justin Coleman, you know, again, that's the type of guy you want to have. I'm curious because obviously Shelton and flowers played probably a little bit, but maybe not much together in 18 Jamie Collins theoretically played a decent amount with with flowers and then you've got guys you know like Harmon flowers played together a decent amount does that do were those guys tight at all like is there anything that you think that they can take chemistry wise that they built in New England and kind of have that transfer automatically like did they have that type of relationship definitely yeah they the um the culture in New England these guys were really close all these guys and I think they'll they'll be speaking the same language, um, you know, that Matt Patricia is in Detroit 
and and the programs are obviously similar because of where Matt came from. So I do think that chemistry is something that will help them. But I do, Michael, I think the point that they're going to make is as tight as we are because of our history together, like that can't be at the expense of making us all tight, you know, of forming this new circle specific to the Detroit Lions. And, you know, like that's a point like here in New England, I'll give you an example that Deron Harmon was part of. Patriots have long had a lot of Rutgers guys, you know, Devin McCourty, Logan Ryan, Deron Harmon from 2010, you know, to 2013, you know, those like three guys that played together in college at Rutgers. And it's like, yeah, it's awesome. We have this history together, but like, we can't have it be that the other defensive backs now feel like, like they're not with us. Do you know what I mean? So you got to right, open yeah. that circle up if that makes sense. It does. It's interesting too when you look at his at Patricia's staff, right? Like when he first hired a bunch of guys, like the running joke, and as a Syracuse alum, like I always used to laugh at it was if you pretty much coached with Matt Patricia at some point at Syracuse, you got a job. <laughs> like that was what it really seemed like in year one. Now, if you look at his defensive staff, everybody except for two people. Bo Davis, who's been his defensive line coach since day one, and um, Stephen Thomas, who's like a low-level defensive assistant. Everyone else was with the Patriots when Patricia was there at some point, from Steve Gregory to Ty Warren's on this staff now to obviously Corey Unglund. Do you think that that was done purposely? Again, because like we've talked about, this make-or-break type of year for Patricia and for Bob Quinn, that he's like, I'm going to have all guys that understand my defense around me and the defense I came up through in around me yeah. to make this happen. So, so I can, I'll speak more in general terms. Cause I honestly don't, you know, I don't know specifically. I haven't talked to Matt Patricia about it, but I think when you're a head coach, like there's probably nothing more important than the staff you surround yourself with. Cause you, you yourself can only do so much. And it's not just, I would say about the defense. It's really about the culture and this is my view from far, far away, Michael, like the Caldwell, the, the Jim Caldwell culture was probably at one end of the spectrum. And the Matt Patricia culture was probably literally like if you're looking at a football field at the other end zone. Right. And that's not to make a judgment to say one culture is the right way to do it. And one culture is the wrong way to do it because I think we can all agree that different cultures can have success. There's no like, oh, you got to do it this way. That's the only way to do it. But because Matt, Matt's always going to go with the culture that he knows. And so to me, if you use that as a foundation for your thought, it's only natural that he's going to want to import people that have been part of that type of culture to help him institute it. And so I think that part to me is interesting when you look at who Matt Patricia is surrounding himself with and really for any coach that's coming into a new situation, not just to, to say, oh, who's he bringing in, but like what's the contrast to what he's trying to do compared to what was there before him? I'm, I'm interested with Steve Gregory and with Ty Warren because you covered them a bit. Did you see them as potential coaches when they were players? Steve Gregory, 100%. One of the smartest people I've ever been around. Every conversation that I had with Steve Gregory was a learning. He taught me something I didn't know. You know, Ty Warren, on the other hand, a little bit different. Um, I, you know, that goes back to 2003. And I never really, I never knew, you know, we never talked about future plans. But he was a great technician as a defensive lineman. So in that sense, like I could see him teaching techniques to defensive linemen. But I never knew if he really wanted to get into coaching at that point because we never really had those type of discussions. But with Steve, you, I, because I remember when I talked with Steve early on, like before he was really here for a while, he was always all about coaching. I mean, because he went and coached in high school and coached at Syracuse. Like that was that when you were covering him, did you know, did he kind of say, I want to do this? This is absolutely what I want to do. I'm going to check right now to okay. some prior communications here to see if that ever came up. Let me see here. I was going, I, I let's see. Uh, 
just looking here and yeah yeah you know what when we talked he had actually said just to give it totally accurately um you know he had said you know i want to stay part of the game and i'm just trying to figure out what i want to do and so um yeah quite quite honestly i i don't i think and i don't know if he said this publicly but i think he had a pretty clear path that when he knew that he was going to be done playing that he was going to be staying in football in some form um, with coaching one of the options that he was definitely going to consider. There are a couple more things that, that I want to just jump into really quick before, uh, before I let you go here, the relationship between Bill and Matt, what was that really like in new England? Because he, it seems like he was around more than almost anybody from a year standpoint too. Really, really positive. You know, I think if Matt Patricia looks at Bill Belichick as probably, you know, the, I don't want to say the single most, but right at the top of the list of the most important people in his career. And I think he would do anything for Bill Belichick. Uh, I think they're still incredibly close. And, um, you know, Matt looked at it, as I understand it, as he was going to do whatever he could to serve Bill Belichick to the best of his ability. And he soaked up his knowledge uh, as much as he could, knowing that he was around one of the best to ever coach. And I think he views it as Bill Belichick set me up in my life for great things and I'm forever indebted to him. And, you know, Matt had great latitude to do what he wanted to do on defense. At the same time, he always knew Bill was there if he needed to run something by him or if Bill had it the other way around where he wanted to, um, you know, say, Hey, I want to tweak this. I want to do it this way. You know, they would have a discussion and it would ultimately come out in a way that they could both feel good about the end result. And so a very collaborative, um, positive dynamic between the two of them. One of the things that I hear often from, I think, mostly uninformed people, but I still hear, so you are there, and your perspective, I think, would be valuable, is some people wonder how much control Matt Patricia really had of the defense, because obviously Bill Belichick's known as such a defensive mind when he was there, because the defense changed and became more aggressive, New England's defense, once Matt left. So how much control did Matt Patricia actually have over the defense while he was there versus it being kind of like a proxy thing? Oh, he definitely had control over the defense. I would say the one thing about Bill Belichick is he's got his hands in everything. I mean, he's a very involved head coach. And so, you know, you'd be out at practice and you'd see Bill right in the middle of any drill. But it was, you know, I would say the idea or the perception that, Matt was a coordinator, but it was really Bill Belichick's defense. I, I would disagree with that perception. And, and, and honestly, probably Michael would, would say it might be disrespectful to the yeah. work that Matt Patricia put in behind the scenes. So, um, yeah, that, that's sort of the way I would boil that one down. Uh, Matt Patricia, I mean, to me, the type of guy he's like sleeping at the office, you know, like putting in all that time and effort. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that was his defense. I have no question about that. Yeah, no, I mean, I've, I've known that, but there, yeah. there are people who don't follow it on a day-to-day -day yeah. and certainly don't follow New England on a day-to-day -day that, yeah. that you, you know what I'm saying? That people 100%, that. 100%. Yeah. And I wasn't, saying, I wasn't saying that you were saying it, but it's more answering the question you yeah, know, yeah. Uh, from my perspective. Obviously, Bill has a relationship with Bob Quinn as well. They trade a lot. Is, do you think, again, that's because – it's just kind of they're familiar with each other and they're looking for similar things or is that maybe Bill and Bob trust each other more than maybe Bill and Les need, for example, you know? Yeah. Well, I would say, I would say a little bit of both, you know, I think what I've learned in talking to people on both ends of those type of discussions is that when you're making a trade call, like a big part of that is the trust that you have with the person on the other end of the line. Hey, am I going to be talking about this trade and am I going to be reading about it five minutes later on the ESPN, you know, Lions blog? Like, you know what I mean? Like, no, like I know I can have a frank, honest discussion uh, with this person and that we're talking the same language football wise. So I think that makes those conversations a lot easier 
than someone where you might not have that background. That doesn't mean you don't go out and have those trade conversations with people from other teams that you don't have that background. But I think it sort of adds context to why you see more of those type of deals and conversations with those who have that background. What's your favorite Matt Patricia story? Well, you know, good question. I would say for me, I would just talk about the person. Like I, I, you know, you were with me, I got the chance to come out to Detroit and he showed me around the facility. And I just have a very high opinion of his personal character and the quality of the individual. And so to me, that I, that's the first one that jumped out to me when you asked the question about my favorite story was just spending time with him and seeing how he's trying to build the program and how proud he was of some of the changes that they made in the building, you know, putting up certain, uh, a wall with the history of the Lions, you know, hey, we want to try to, to have some, some pride in what this organization is all about. Um, so that, you know, that, that one stands out to me. And I would say, you know, just in general, Michael, like, to me, this whole business is about relationships. And it's been a very positive experience for me and my relationship with, with Matt. He's taught me a lot about the game. And so maybe not necessarily one story that stands out as much as the continuous sort of building of a personal relationship with someone that I think is a very bright football mind and also has a high character. The, the last thing I want to hit on, and uh, you, you've been in New England and you've seen a bunch of guys, whether it's Charlie Weiss or Romeo Cornell or Mangini or Josh McDaniels or Matt or even Bill O'Brien, you know, all these guys have left. And depending how you feel about Bill O'Brien's success or not in Houston and the fact that he went to Penn State first, not a lot of them have been successful. Why do you think that maybe they haven't been successful once they leave Bill and New England? Why, from your perspective, why does the Patriot way, the Patriot method, maybe not work anywhere else? Well, I would start with more of a wider view of it and say that I think the job, Michael, is hard. You know, uh, look at the turnover across the league. Like, it's not like there's snap your fingers and people going in and having instant success. The failure rate league-wide is much higher than it is, you know, because the, the job itself is hard, right? And the patience that, you know, that you would have had, let's say, in the 70s or 80s isn't there, right? So I think that's the context where, where I would start with. And I would say in terms of former Patriots assistants going on to new places and, let's say, not having the success that those teams would have liked when they hired them, you know, I think part of it might be that initially you might struggle if you're in that position to balance like all right how do I do it the way I learned with the Patriots but also put my own spin on it and maybe acknowledge that wow I can't do it that way that we had with the Patriots because Bill Belichick is a special coach individual and he has the ability to balance the salary cap the roster building the coaching that I probably might need one or two people beside me to, to create that dynamic. So, you know, look, it's the same thing you, we were talking about with Deron Harmon. How do we know that Deron can go from that 50 to 60% playtime player to 90 to 95% until he actually does it, right? Like, yeah. you don't. So you got to go experience it. You got to have eyes wide open, right? And, and, and sort of take your best stab at it. You know, the GM in, in Atlanta, Thomas Dimitrov, is a product of this system, and he's been there for more than a decade, right? And I think he's a great sort of case study in this conversation because I would say his approach has probably evolved over time, and he's put his own spin on things, and he's had some great success and has had some struggles at times. And so I think it can be done. Um, Bill O'Brien's another good one that you mentioned, but he had some different experiences, went on his own at Penn State first. Mike Vrabel is from this program, right? But not necessarily directly out of this coaching tree. Interesting discussion, a lot of different layers to it. And I think there's a lot of different ways we can go with the answers on that.
Yeah, I mean, it, for, to me, it looks like with Bob and Matt, I mean, they may, because the two of them combined probably spent more time with Bill than any other duo that's left. Is that is that accurate? Or am I missing somebody? Uh, no, I think that's probably true, especially when you consider that they both spent their entire NFL professional life here. Yeah. Right? Like, so all here and then to Detroit, all here and then to Detroit, right? In the NFL. Whereas like Mike Rabel, like he had an experience at Ohio State under Urban Meyer, had an experience under Bill O'Brien at Houston, right? Like, so you're, you're widening out a little bit when you've been at a couple different places, even though technically you're still from this same tree. Do you think that that's maybe could force a longer learning curve than maybe a guy like Bill O'Brien or Vrabel or even a guy like Kyle O'Brien who's on their staff who was in New England for a long time but has also bounced around to Kansas City and to Jacksonville and a couple of other places? I mean, it, it can. I think I look at it like this. There's, there's probably other factors that are a lot greater than that. You know, like does your quarterback get hurt? You know, your franchise quarterback get hurt. To me, Michael, like that's at the, you know, close to the top of the list compared to like the learning curve of, right. you know, having been with the Patriots the whole time. Like how is that, how is last season in Detroit different, you know, if that, if that doesn't happen, right? To me, it's probably more about that than the other side of it, but certainly it can be, it can be in the sense of like you're learning as you go, right? And you, 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 you haven't had as much exposure to other buildings, other ways of doing things that can, that could be a benefit to you that maybe isn't a benefit to you, you know? So I don't think there's a clear cut answer to that. I don't think, I don't think it's necessarily bad to say, Hey, we're going to go with these guys that have been in new England, their whole careers. Like, I don't think that's prohibitive, but I also think sometimes seeing the other side of things, the way another organization does it can help. Sometimes that can hurt too. You know, I don't, I don't see it either way definitively um, with that situation. And just to bring it full circle from the top of our conversation, because you just mentioned quarterback, gut feeling, who's the starting quarterback of the New England Patriots in week one of this season, provided there is a season? You know, I think Jarrett Stidham, their fourth-round pick last year from Auburn, is the odds-on favorite um, to be the quarterback. Uh, had the best preseason of any rookie under Bill Belichick last year. A little bit more of a mobile type. You know, he can make plays with his feet. Uh, sort of reminds me of 2001, you know, when the Patriots made the switch to Brady. Obviously, I'm not saying Stidham's going to be Brady, but you have an element of the unknown there, and you sort of see how it's going to unfold. Well, you're going to be there to cover it expertly, as you always do. Mike, thanks for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. All right, Michael, thanks for having me. Stay safe, and we'll be keeping in touch. Absolutely. Well, I hope you learned something from that interview with Mike. I'm really thankful that he came on the show and was so gracious with his time. We chatted for about an hour to hopefully give y'all some some insight into the New England to Detroit pipeline and what the Lions could be getting with some of these ex-patriots. You can follow Mike Reese on Twitter, at Mike Reese. And you can follow him on Instagram, at Mike Reese Patriots. He's a really good follow in both spots. You can obviously follow me on Twitter and on Instagram, at Mike Rothstein. We're going to get the website back going as well, where we'll link to episode shows, and we're going to start to do some of the travel and, and other stuff as we go. Obviously, give us a five-star review wherever you listen to these podcasts, whether that's Apple, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, Overcast, really anywhere. Just drop us a five-star review, download it, subscribe, and hopefully more than anything else, listen. We're going to be trying to get some interesting guests here as we go. So if there's someone that you really want to hear from, leave us a note on Twitter, on Instagram, in the review comments. Shoot me a note in an email. Let me know who maybe you want to hear from and we'll try to get them for you. Obviously, we're in shelter in place here in Michigan, so we're going to work on that as we go. While I also pick up some other hobbies along with continuing to work for ESPN.com, I bought a guitar, 
going to try to learn how to play that. I'm watching all of the Marvel movies in chronological order, starting with Captain America, the first Avenger. And I've got a book stack about nine books deep. So maybe we'll start talking about some of that too. Anyway, appreciate you listening as always. And please be safe, wash your hands and stay home if you can. We'll chat with you again on Monday.